0: All right, let's go.
1: Hi, welcome to the Flawed Theology Podcast. I'm Phil.
0: And I'm Susie. And we're asking the question, if your theology were wrong, wouldn't you want to know?
1: So we wanted to start today's episode with a little bit of feedback and thanks to people who have been listening. We've been like really surprised about the feedback that we've been getting and how many people are listening to the podcast. So that's really cool. So we wanted to share a couple of pieces of correspondence that we got. The first one I wanted to share was from a gentleman who I won't, I won't say his name, but he's from Northern Ireland, which I thought was really cool. And he basically sent an email saying, I was raised Catholic. I was forced to go to church and, you know, I didn't read my Bible uh, as much as I should, but I really tried to do church as much as I could. And it never, never really sat right with me. And then he tells a story. I'm going to tell the story. I've always had an interest in Israel, and I followed a Jewish man called Ari Fold on the internet. Ari was a religious Jew who went most Thursday nights to the Western Wall in Jerusalem and live streamed himself talking about that week's Parsha, the weekly passage of the Torah that Jews read. Ari was fatally stabbed in 2018, and I just can't accept that someone who is a far more righteous man than I am is in hell simply because he rejected Jesus. I've been thinking about all the Jews in the Holocaust and how I've been deconstructing my beliefs over the past couple of years. Listen to your podcast and I really enjoy them. I have a lot more going on with my life, but I don't want to bore you with it all. That was just a really cool piece of feedback about somebody, and he used kind of some logic saying, you know, it doesn't make sense that this guy was killed for his beliefs and that he's in hell.
0: Yeah. And he's using his brain, he's thinking about things. And does this line up with reality? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So thanks for that email.
0: I received a, a message from, well, who I think is my church twin, actually. She was raised Missouri Synod Lutheran, like I was. And she, felt like she was going through the motions her whole life just like I was and she admitted to herself about a year and a half ago that she didn't believe any of it and she's having a pretty hard time but she said that it's helpful to hear my story and to listen to our podcast and know that there's other people out there who are going through the same thing so yeah shout out to you we hear you
1: This uh, week's episode is called the one with all the fallacies. And we're going to talk about biases, common logical fallacies used when forming or promoting a belief system. And we're going to talk a little bit about the difference between science and pseudoscience.
0: So, Phil, what is a bias?
1: A bias simply is basically just like an assumption or a presupposition that you have about anything. And we all have presuppositions and biases and having them really isn't wrong. There's nothing wrong with having biases as long as you recognize that you have them. And that's the thing that we're trying to point out is that we all have biases as human beings. Like it may be a racial bias. It may be about a certain neighborhood. It may be about a certain religion. And there's nothing wrong with having those biases. But then acknowledging that you have them. And then what do you do with those biases as you look at information?
0: Right. So um, a cognitive bias is also defined as a mental shortcut. So it's interesting to think of it like that. In this episode, we are going to be talking about these biases and logical fallacies, but we are not trying to say that Christians have these, atheists don't. Everybody has biases. Everybody engages in logical fallacies. Phil and I do.
1: Right. Yeah, we definitely do. I don't know. if Have you ever uh, heard of the musical Avenue Q? No. It's a really funny musical. It's grossly inappropriate. It's basically looks like Sesame Street, but it's for adults. (laughs) But they have a song in there, but it's called Everyone's a Little Bit Racist. And it's humorous uh, because it's hand puppets singing a song about a a real topic. But it goes into this idea and it goes through a lot of different races and people groups. And it just points out all the stereotypes about these different groups. And the whole thing is this conversation between these puppets going back and forth saying, I'm not racist. And then they'll say such and such of people group, you know, has this such and such a stereotype. And they're like, oh,
0: yeah, we should link to that.
1: Yeah, maybe we can link to it in the notes because it's really funny and it's thought provoking. So When we're talking to somebody, one of the things that's very important to do is for everybody in that conversation to accept that we have biases and that we're aware of them. Because if you can do that, then you're at a starting point for a conversation it's It's very similar to our tagline. If your theology theology were wrong, would you want to know about it? If someone doesn't isn't willing to admit that they have a bias, then it's going to be really hard to have a conversation with that person that's objective.
0: So when you were a Christian, did you have a bias against atheists? Did you have a preconception about them?
1: Oh, absolutely. yes, i
0: what did you think that they were?
1: Well, atheist was like the scariest concept that you could imagine, like. The idea of an atheist or someone being an atheist was that they had no moral compass that they, you know, they could do any measure of sin without having any kind of guilt or mm-hmm. you know, they would never repent or feel bad about doing something wrong. They didn't care about the afterlife for sure, so they were already living a worthless life basically because they didn't care about heaven or hell.
0: Yeah, and they're miserable And they hate god oh absolutely they just want to sin these are things that i heard a lot i don't think that i ever said these but i definitely heard other people say them yeah people deconvert and they wonder why they ever thought that about atheists because now they're an atheist and they think well i'm not those things i'm not angry and i don't just (laughs) want to sin I, i just factually think that christianity is not true and that there is no reason to think there's a god that's it
1: right i can't remember who it is i think it was one of the late night hosts you know, because one of the arguments that people say is, well, if you don't have Christianity, there's no framework for morality. And so then you can do whatever sin you want. And they were talking about raping and murdering. And this particular host was saying, oh, well, I can rape and murder all the people that I want, which is none.
0: Yeah. So let's uh, let's move on to confirmation bias. This is one of the huge ones that we run into on a daily basis, pretty much. So confirmation bias is the human tendency to search Interpret, favor, and recall information in a way that confirms one's pre existing beliefs or hypotheses. So if you have a confirmation bias, that means you are not seeking objective facts. You are only interpreting information to support your existing belief. You only remember details that uphold your existing belief, and you ignore information that challenges your existing belief. This is going to keep coming up again and again in this episode.
1: Yeah, and confirmation bias, I had literally never heard this term until like a couple of years ago when I was in this deconstruction process. I had concept of biases and and stereotypes, but I had never heard the term confirmation bias. And I don't remember who introduced it to me. It was probably an article or a podcast or a Facebook post or something. And they said, oh, there's this term confirmation bias, which basically you just use the data you have to confirm the bias you already have. And I'm like, oh, oh shit.
0: That's what I'm doing. <laughs> that's
1: exactly what it was like. And I, it, it was kind of cool to have a term to put to that. And then now once you once you have awareness of that bias, you see it everywhere. And not just in religion, you know, it, you see people using confirmation bias in all areas of life.
0: Even like what kind of car you like to buy. You might read news articles that favor your favorite brand of car, and you don't read about any other brand of car or maker or whatever. Yeah. Because you don't want to know. You want to keep your brand as the favorite brand. <laughs> I don't think brand is the right word. I'm not a car person.
1: Yeah. Y- yeah. You don't want any data that would be like, oh no, my Ford, it actually sucks, you know, like. Yeah. <laughs> And most people probably agree that they have some biases, and they especially agree that other people have biases. So there's actually a term for this too called the bias blind spot, which basically means I'm really good at noticing other people's biases, but I am not so good about identifying my own biases, which I think to me sounds fairly human we're usually pretty good at picking apart other people or not so good at the self-awareness. And
0: so I can admit that I have done this in my early 20s. I went through a very politically conservative phase and it was mainly because of my household being uh, politically conservative and I had just left my household and they had influenced me in that way. But when I would read news sources and things, I would think that I had it all figured out and that I was the only one who was Absorbing information correctly, and I thought everybody else was just so biased. Right. And now looking back, I'm thinking, well, I have totally different political leanings now. So yeah, what was I back then? Like, what's the difference? I couldn't have been right back then because what am I now?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think it's it's dangerous to ever think that you have it all figured out. Yeah. And and being able to admit saying, well, maybe there's another perspective. I mean, I'm sure I still do this, especially in the political spectrum. You know, you're reading an article, you only read articles from a certain set of news sources because they line up with what you already think. You're confirming that bias by reading news sources that align with what you already believe. So if you only do that, then you're never going to ever hear the other side of the coin and that's dangerous. It you is
0: It is very dangerous. That's a good word, dangerous.
1: Yeah. And and that's it's not healthy for you either to just live in that echo chamber, which we've talked about before.
0: Yeah. And so you saying the word dangerous, it kind of triggered me because that's a word that my mom used when I told her that I was asking hard questions about Christianity. She said, you're asking dangerous questions to the wrong people. And what she really meant was stay in your little bubble. Right. Don't get any other perspectives on your worldview.
1: Yeah. Stay in your lane because you're going to get out there. And you're going to find out something that's going to shatter everything that you believe, which is in the Christian view is obviously the worst thing that could possibly happen because when you live in that bubble, it's your whole life, which is why deconstruction is so hard. It's not something that people are just dying to deconstruct because it's the cool thing to do. You know? Which, no,
0: it's, it's that's hard. That's the thing
1: that people like to talk about these days, that deconstruction is the, the new sexy fad. None of us wanted to do this.
0: <laughs> I did. I, I wanted to.
1: Oh, you might be. You probably wanted to because you were trying to find the answers, but you didn't want to let go of...
0: I didn't want to blow my life up, no. We've covered biases in kind of a general way. So now we're going to kind of talk about it more on a religious spin. So there's a school of apologetics called presuppositional apologetics. So there's lots of different schools of apologetics, of Christian apologetics, and this is only one of them but it's the weirdest one. (laughs) It makes the claim that the Christian faith is the only basis for rational thought. It presupposes that the Bible is divine revelation. You are not even allowed to use your human reason when you are doing your apologetics. You can't use any rational arguments with presuppositional apologetics because they reject reason as corrupt and sinful and they work from the presupposition that the Bible is the ultimate truth.
1: Yeah, using reason is actually evidence of sin.
0: Yes, that's how they spin it. So the founder of presuppositionalism, his name is Cornelius Van Til.
1: Cornelius. (laughs) Great name. It is.
0: So he argued that traditional apologetics reinforces human autonomy and makes unbelievers the judge of God, when instead, unbelievers should submit to God as judge. All right. So this is crazy. And I just want to um, read an excerpt in response to this from the blog that I mentioned in the second episode called sufficientreasons.wordpress.com. And it's from their blog post number one. It says our responsibility as rational humans is to diligently examine all available confirming and disconfirming evidence prior to a commitment of belief. This assessment is first. No evidence is off limits. Only after assessing all of the evidence can we then assign a degree of belief. If any ideology forbids or discourages the asking of relevant questions prior to belief, that ideology can legitimately be dismissed as likely false since we have good reason to believe that any true ideology will not discourage such testing of its claims. Mike drop.
1: The funny thing about this whole idea is they even in their like if you had a mission statement, they say that human autonomy is bad, which most Christians and stuff would never just outright admit to that. They're like, oh no, autonomy is okay. You can think for yourself, but you just need to filter everything through the word of God. They're saying, no, your autonomy is horrible. You cannot think for yourself. The Bible is the only answer.
0: Yeah. Well, the thing is that they're making an assertion without any evidence. Right. They're just saying, accept this premise and everything else falls into place and we don't have to justify our, our premise at all. Yeah. So that's why this is crazy, and most apologists don't ascribe to this presuppositional apologetics because they realize that you can't prove Christianity just by assuming it's true.
1: The next section that we're going to move into is we're going to talk about fallacies and three common fallacies that are used in debates about the existence of God. Let's talk about our first one, which is begging the question. you want to talk about that a little?
0: Sure. So this what happens when an argument's premise assumes the truth of the conclusion instead of supporting it. And we'll give some examples, but don't get confused. Begging the question is not the same thing as to beg the question, meaning to raise a question. So, oh, that's interesting, Phil. So that begs the question. What did you have for breakfast? <laughs> it's not like that. Right, right. It proves a proposition while taking the proposition for granted. This is another term for circular reasoning.
1: You're stuck just going around it over and over. There's no beginning and no end, you know, kind of like those that magical song about the love of God as a circle has no beginning and no end. Well, so does begging the question. <laughs> it's got no beginning and no end. You start with your with your idea that you're trying to prove, and then you use your idea that you're trying to prove as the evidence to prove what you're trying to prove.
0: So in other words, A is true because B is true. And B is true because A is true. So an example of this that's non-religious is smoking cigarettes can kill you because cigarettes are deadly. So the first and the second part of that statement are saying the exact same thing. And if you imagine this as a roundabout, you can enter the roundabout in the first part of the statement or the second part of the statement. But either way, you enter this continuous inescapable circle.
1: Yeah, it's like a boot loop when your computer comes up and it just won't fully actually start up it's just like rah, rah, <laughs> you're going around in circles
0: yeah the people who are most likely to use or be convinced by this type of argument are those who have confirmation bias which makes sense
1: yeah we told you that would come up yeah. again didn't we so there's there's some of these in the religious realm too like god is real because the bible says so
0: and we can trust the bible because it's from god
1: right and you, so you could start like just like susie was saying you can start in the middle at the end or at the beginning and you're always saying the same thing but you're not ever giving any proof for your argument you know it's like those nigerian nigerian prince emails where you get an email everyone's gotten these and somehow how long have these things been around like since the dawn of email and people are still falling for them mostly unfortunately boomers
0: oh that was a bias phil that was a bias you just oh
1: you're right. You're right. But yeah, mostly uneducated email people <laughs> that don't know about scams. That's better. And uh, um, yeah, unfortunately, you know, I work in cybersecurity. So it's, it's one of those things. My bias is real.
0: Another religious example is the existence of creation implies a creator. I actually snagged this from a holy coolie video, but they're assuming a creator because you're assuming a creation.
1: Right. It's the whole design indicates designer, which you mm-hmm. see a lot in the intelligent design argument for the origins of the universe, which we'll talk about a little bit later too. So, Next one, which is called The Argument from Ignorance or the appeal to ignorance, which I think this one is kind of my favorite one because it's really common. It's a fallacy that asserts that a proposition is true because it hasn't yet been proven false, or that a proposition is false because it hasn't been proven true yet. It doesn't allow for the possibility that your answer is unknowable. It always assumes that there has to be an answer, and this is one's real common about the existence of God. You'll hear in debates and in, in discussions will say, well, atheists can't prove that there isn't a God, so there must be a God, which is flawed because you can't prove a negative. You, The evidence and the burden of proof lies on the person who has to prove the positive, not the negative.
0: If you take out the word God and you replace it with something ridiculous, like a polka-dotted zebra created you know, the universe, <laughs> then you can really see the fallacy of it. Like You can't prove to me that a polka dotted zebra did not create the universe.
1: Right. The burden of proof thing is the is the big point of that argument when you get into this discussion because, yeah, you can't logically defend the absence of something because reality already demonstrates the absence
0: of that oh, thing. So if I have a jar and it's empty and I say that I have an invisible dragon in my jar, or this is like the Carl Sagan <laughs> dragon in my garage. Yeah. I can't tell you that there is a dragon in my jar be- just because you can't prove there isn't. Right. You could look in my jar and say, well, I don't see any evidence of a dragon in your jar. Why don't we just switch to garage? I mean, I'm basically ripping off of his his story.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have to be a really small dragon, so it makes it even more
0: <laughs> yeah, right
1: fantastical because it's like a tiny dragon. But I saw a pretty funny post on Reddit a couple days ago. A consumer was asked for photographic proof that they didn't receive the item that they had ordered. But he had a picture of his empty hand <laughs> and the caption said, Proof that I didn't get what I ordered. Nice. How are you going to prove that you didn't get it? Like, you can't prove a negative. That's
0: that's a perfect tie-in example for this.
1: Yeah. A couple of examples. These are hilarious. And if you really start to, like, look at fallacies and how they work, you'll start to see that using them as logical explanations for things are just so silly. So this this first one's pretty funny. Although we have proven that the moon is not made of spare ribs, We have not proven that its core cannot be filled with them. Therefore, the moon's core is filled with spare ribs.
0: Hmm. Why spare ribs? I don't know.
1: So you had put one about Carl Sagan about UFOs.
0: All right. There is no compelling evidence that UFOs are not visiting the earth. Therefore, UFOs exist and there is intelligent life elsewhere in the universe. Another example, since there is no evidence that God doesn't exist, then God exists. Yeah. That's basically what we've been saying this whole time.
1: Moving right along to fallacy number three.
0: Fallacy number three is the argument from personal incredulity. This one might be my favorite. So this asserts that a proposition must be false because it contradicts one's personal expectations or beliefs or is difficult to imagine. It occurs when someone concludes that since they can't believe something is true, it must be false and vice versa. I think this is one of the last ones that people hang on to in terms of the God belief. Somebody could logically realize that all of their arguments for God are fallacious, but they hang on to it anyway because they can't imagine how we got here without God or why there's something rather than nothing without God or how we evolved from single-celled organisms without God.
1: Yeah, it's definitely like that last clinging belief where you're like, okay, you've proven your point, but still I'm going to believe what I believe because I just can't wrap my head around everything that I've always believed not being true. Yes. It, It makes sense on some level. When you start picking apart these beliefs, you might get to the point where logically you say, I can't believe this, but then emotionally you're like, I can't let go of it. Exactly. I mean, I think that's what a lot of people do. I mean, I think I did that probably towards the end of my deconstruction journey. It was like, okay, I've I've seen all this evidence, but I, I just can't accept it. So I'm going to still try to hang on to this belief as long as I possibly can.
0: And it's the last one to give way. So I think that a lot of it is because it takes a lot of effort to try to understand evolution and understand the science behind the universe. It really does take a lot of study. You have to be willing to do it. You have to put in the time. You have to have the kind of brain that can comprehend all that stuff. Whereas to believe that God did it, all you have to do is believe that God did it. Like that's literally all you have to do. You can explain it to a child. So I've had my kids come to me and say, well, where did everything come from? And where did we come from? Trying to explain the big bang and evolution (laughs) to a child is really difficult. You know, I'm still in the process of doing that so that they can actually understand it. But, I can totally see how it's way easier to just say, "Oh, God did it, yeah, and he did it in six days, and that's where we all came from, you know, and he made us from from dirt
1: yeah yeah if you're if you're looking for the simplest route, then yeah, believing in God is, is I guess on some level it's easy, and then when you get on the other side of it and you start unpacking all the complexities of the universe and all this stuff, then you look at the God belief and you say that's much harder than believing that this is a natural phenomenon i'm actually reading. A book called The Making of the Fittest, which is about evolution proof, and it uses DNA as the proof for evolution. And it's fascinating. Like, I need to read that. Yeah, it's really good. And because the creation evolution argument is one of those things that was so embedded in me that I need to see the science and learn about the other side of it, because to me, it still doesn't make sense. Like God is still on some level easier for me to believe. Oh
0: yeah. And I'm a cell biology and genetics major. Right. And it is still, still mind blowing to me that we are here and our bodies are so complex and that it all happened through not natural processes. That is mind blowing, but in a, in a, like in a really awe inspiring way, not like I don't believe it. Right. So there's other things in nature and Engineering and that I don't necessarily understand. And here's an example I am absolutely perplexed by quantum entanglement. Ever since I first heard about it, I've been trying to understand it.
1: Can you unentangle what quantum entanglement is? Like, Low level for us doofuses over here.
0: It's when two particles can affect each other over a great distance. Like somehow they they become tied to each other and they are identical in their spin. And they can even be separated by huge distances like light years. Okay. And they still affect one another. Okay. And I don't understand this. I've spent a lot of time trying to read about it, but it's way over my head. Right. I don't for a second actually doubt that it's true. Right. You know, I trust the physicists who have put in the work to come up with these hypotheses and that they have the data to back it up. I am not a quantum entanglement denier.
1: Right. Just because you don't understand it doesn't mean you're saying it doesn't exist. You're just saying, I don't understand it. Exactly. Which I think there's a real freedom in being able to say, I don't know. As a Christian, I would never say I don't know about something, even if I didn't know. I'd be like, well, I know the answers in the Bible somewhere. So now on the other side of that, there's a real freedom in saying I just don't know and I don't have to know. And just because I don't completely understand something doesn't mean that we have a logical leg to stand on to say that it isn't true. You run into a lot of problems when you attribute the things that we don't know to a deity and or when there's no one on the planet that actually knows it to be verifiably true. So just because you don't know something, it's really easy to say, oh, well, God did it because you can't prove that, you know, it's just an easy conversation ender, like, You know, I don't understand quantum physics and the multiverse, but there are people that do, and I rely on them and I trust their knowledge for them to find the truth. And then when they explain it to me in a way that maybe I can understand on some small level, I'll be like, that's amazing. And that's cool. So,
0: so Neil deGrasse Tyson, who all of our listeners probably know who that is. He said, does it mean if you don't understand something that the community of physicists don't understand it? That means God did it. If that's how you want to invoke your evidence for God, then God is an ever receding pocket of scientific ignorance that's getting smaller and smaller and smaller as time moves on oh,
1: man. that is a smack yeah because yeah as as we progress in human development we learn more and more like just look in the past 500 years how much we've learned and then all those things 500 years ago that they might have attributed to god or evil spirits now you found out oh it's because of bacteria mm-hmm.
0: weather weather patterns and right weather plates
1: right yeah so yeah that's a that's a great quote so you've got a, a pretty cool story that you wanted to share yeah
0: i have a really good example of this so i've been corresponding with somebody in my life who i love dearly we have history together all of our lives and we've been having these theological discussions and i asked her why she believes this was her response why do i believe that's a question i've never really had to answer and i'm sad to say i don't have a great answer prepared i was thinking about it some today and i guess it comes down to the fact that i have to i can't accept that this is all there is Life is too complex for it to be accidental or chance, and people have so much more mental capacity than any other life on earth. We think about eternity, afterlife, etc., and it makes no sense for that awareness and desire to exist unless God placed it in us.
1: Ugh, that's a rough one.
0: So that is the epitome of the argument from personal incredulity.
1: And and you can understand why someone would say that.
0: It's totally understandable.
1: Yeah, I understand it. You know, I probably thought the same way. And even on some things in the world today, it's like, okay, I I can get that idea. But as soon as you realize that there's like a fallacy in that thinking, then you can start to unpack and say, okay, well, I know that that thinking doesn't make sense. And it seems like this person knew on some level that that answer didn't make sense, but they still doubled down on it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, the other example that I had thought of was like, people are, these days are very wrapped up about vaccines. And so they'll say, well, I don't see how vaccines can be safe for children. They must be seriously dangerous in some way. The only reason doctors push for vaccination is because they get paid to do it by big pharmaceutical companies. Again, this is just like not trusting the experts. And so I can't imagine how they're safe. So therefore they can't be safe.
0: Yeah. So they're, they're resorting to these, to incredulity instead of evidence. So I just published a blog post on personal incredulity, and I go into more detail about it there and my thoughts on it. So if you're interested, go check it out. All right, so we're gonna move on to talking about science versus pseudoscience. I really love this topic because I love science. I know you like science. (laughs) So I'm gonna read a graphic from The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. And as you're listening to this, be on your guard because You need to be able to to recognize when other people are engaged in pseudoscience, and also you need to be aware of it for yourself. So some of these can be applied to an individual. Some are more geared to members of the scientific community like Kent Hovind, and i put scientific in air quotes. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. So as I read these, think about how you personally have gone about searching for truth and how those that you know are doing it. Okay, so science follows the evidence wherever it leads. Pseudoscience starts with a conclusion, then works backwards to confirm. Science embraces criticism. Pseudoscience is hostile to criticism. Science uses precise terminology with clear definitions. Pseudoscience uses vague jargon to confuse and evade. I've definitely seen that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So science says that claims are conservative and tentative, and pseudoscience makes grandiose claims that go beyond the evidence. Science properly considers all the evidence and the arguments, and pseudoscience cherry-picks only favorable evidence and relies on testimonials or weak evidence. Science uses rigorous and repeatable methods. Pseudoscience uses flawed methods with unrepeatable results.
0: Science engages with peers and community. Pseudoscience is lone mavericks working in isolation. Science follows careful and valid logic. Pseudoscience uses inconsistent and invalid logic. Science changes with new evidence. Pseudoscience is dogmatic and unyielding. Now, I want you to pay attention to that last one. Yeah. Science changes with new evidence. Pseudoscience is dogmatic and unyielding. There was a debate with Ken Ham and Bill Nye. At the end of the debate, Ken Ham said that nothing would change his views on creationism. Nothing. But Bill Nye said that if enough convincing evidence were presented to him, he would change his mind immediately. So that's telling, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it really is. And uh, if you guys don't know who Ken Ham or Bill Nye is, well, you probably live under a rock. But Ken Ham (laughs) is the guy who runs Answers in Genesis, which is a, a young earth creation organization. They built this huge arc out in Kentucky. If you ever watch this debate, it's... It's hard to watch. It honestly is because the biases of the fallacies are so—they're so on display. They're rampant. Yeah, if you're watching it, you you have to pause the thing a couple times because you're like, "What the hell did he just say?" Like, yeah. And there, there to me, I don't think there's any greater stage where you see pseudoscience use um, in the apologetic arena, you know, than in the realm of young Earth creation and Earth oh, yeah. Earth origin. It's, it's huge.
0: Because they can't exist without it. They can't convince anybody without resorting to those kind of pseudoscience tactics. They don't have evidence on their side.
1: Yeah. we And we can sit there with that list like, and talk about some of these things and come up with examples. But... My favorite one in there is that science properly considers all the evidence and arguments and pseudoscience cherry picks the favorable evidence and relies on testimonials and weak evidence. So if you think about anything in the church life, it was never based on evidence. It was always like, oh, well, so-and-so had this experience happen. There was no way to prove that it happened. It was just so-and-so had this experience and testimonials and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, and science will look at all the evidence and... And then if it doesn't meet their conclusion that they started with their hypothesis, well, then they change. And that's a huge thing, the changing with the new evidence, because I feel like in today's world, pseudoscience is even bigger of a problem with the pandemic and all that stuff. And people are all upset about, well, at the beginning of the pandemic, they told us this. And now a year and a half later, they're telling us this. Well, yes, because they got new evidence. They found out more stuff about the virus, you know, and so, and that's what science does. It science never claims to be perfect. It never claimed to have it a hundred percent right.
0: They don't want to be perfect, right?
1: They're always actually open to being wrong. And I think, I don't know if that's a uniquely American thing or if it's a human thing of where you think that someone who's an expert in a field should never be wrong. To me, I actually get a lot of confidence and belief in an expert that is willing to come out and say, look, I did all this research and here's the conclusion I came to. And it turns out I was wrong. And they can say that. And then they can say, I'm going to go find the actual truth and find the actual answer. As opposed to someone who just digs their heels in, like Ken Ham and says, it doesn't matter to me if if you presented me the evidence. I don't care. It makes me shake my head. For those of you who can't see me on camera, I just shook my head and almost lost my headphones. But, um, so- there's another great discussion about this on another podcast called Counter Apologetics, which I think you've followed this one a little bit more than me. But I came across this one a couple of weeks ago, and I thought it was really interesting because it brings up confirmation bias. And he talks about a scientific, again, another air quote <laughs> yeah. study that um, a guy named, I think his name is Michael Michael, Be- Behe. Michael Behe, who is a, a young earth creation guy. Um, he published a study.
0: Sorry, I don't think he's a young Earth creation. I think he's an intelligent design advocate. No, yeah,
1: that's that's what I mean. Yes, intelligent okay. intelligent design. So his paper that he wrote was on the concept of irreducible complexity, and that there were certain things that could not be reduced because they were so complex, and so that was kind of a proof for intelligent design. And he his favorite thing to reference was the bacterium flagellum, which is a microscopic component that evolved. And so he ran a computer simulation to basically try to prove his hypothesis, which was That there hasn't been enough time in the universe for this bacterium flagellum to have evolved from what it started as to what it became, which was this multifunctioning bacterium with a propeller and all kinds of cool parts. How do you show his his bias?
0: I've listened to this one twice, but not in a while. I wish I had refreshed my memory, but he basically had a computer program where he simulated the creation of this flagellum and he set the parameters of his of the mutations to be way too low so his sample size was too low it was like the the amount of bacteria in his simulation was like no see i wish i had i'm gonna say it wrong but it was like in a square inch of dirt or something right so way less than actually on the earth right and he ignored all other sources of mutation except for one specific kind Right. And even with those limitations that he placed on his own experiment, he still showed that you can get the flagellum in a pretty decent amount of time. I forget what the amount of time was. See, I really should have been more prepared for this. Put me on the spot.
1: Yeah, I can't remember what the amount of time was, but I think some other scientists then took his computer simulation and they added in all the variables that you would use in a real scientific experiment. And the thing evolved to its full capacity in 25,000 years. There you go. Twenty-five thousand years is still too long for you know the id people but still it was a very interesting thing because he tried to rig it to prove his hypothesis he was trying to use the scientific method but that's exactly why something like this is pseudoscience because you tried to make it look scientific you published it in a um peer-reviewed and peer-edited scientific publications supporting the theory of intelligence design. And I was reading part of it actually, and it looks real intelligent. It looks real sciency. Like it's an abstract. Uh I'm like, oh, this is pretty cool. So like, if you didn't know what you were looking at and you weren't a scientist, like I'm not a scientist. I read it. I'm like, this sounds pretty good. But then a real scientist looks at it and they say, well, you forgot all this stuff. And it wasn't that he forgot. And
0: that's the danger is that we as lay people wouldn't be able to read that paper immediately and say, oh, this is what he did wrong. or this is why he came up with those results. We need somebody else to point it out to us.
1: Right. Right. It
0: really is the danger of these people when they are trying to start with a conclusion and work backwards, withhold evidence.
1: Or are trying to prove their conclusion with their with their conclusion. Y- yeah. You started with your conclusion and then you're trying to prove it instead of starting with, hey, let's see if this is true and let's see if we can find the evidence to prove that it's true. You've already assumed that it's true, and now I'm gonna to try to work my magic to make it true. <laughs> you know, yeah,
0: But you can see how easy it is for people to accept pseudoscience. Oh, absolutely. When they don't have the expertise to say, no, this isn't right.
1: Right, and in today's world where information is so like easily obtainable, it's so easy to find something that looks like it's scientific. Oh, well, this doctor said this. Well, okay. Yeah. What kind of doctor is he? Like, you know, all these kind of things that you start to develop as you develop the skill of critical thinking. If my pediatrician told my child that they had cancer... I wouldn't just take the pediatrician's word for it. I would take them to an oncologist and I would get a lot of tests, you know, all that kind of stuff. And that's what science seeks to do as opposed to pseudoscience, which just wants you to accept it.
0: So we will link to that episode of counter apologetics in the description. I love that podcast. It's the first one I listened to as I was on my way out and before I had told anyone. But it was when I was first admitting to myself, he makes so much sense. He's, you know, he's very logical. He's yeah. he's like us. Shout out to Emerson Green.
1: Yeah. His podcasts are like short and digestible too, because he mm-hmm. is very intelligent and you can tell that he like has done a lot of research, unlike us clearly, but like, <laughs> he's done yeah. a lot of research and he, and he presents this stuff very factually, but he keeps them short. So that way you're not like blown away, which is, is cool. It's yeah. very, it's very wise. Uh, he
0: also part. gets really into philosophy. He has another podcast like a sister podcast called walden or something pond walden pond
1: it's walden pod
0: walden pod that's right uh yeah if you're into philosophy go check that out
1: yeah he's a cool guy So what do you think is the way that we should go about looking at evidence and making decisions?
0: So always start with a hypothesis, not a conclusion. Uh, You should test the hypothesis. Now, this sounds very sciencey, but this is in science I'm talking about. Test the hypothesis, evaluate your evidence, and then either revise your hypothesis or, or confirm it. Now, religion isn't science, so we can't directly translate the scientific method to God. But we can still say don't start with a conclusion and work backwards. Don't twist your evidence to fit your existing assumptions.
1: Yeah, the beautiful part about the scientific method is if you come up with your hypothesis and then test it and it doesn't prove your hypothesis, there's no shame in that.
0: Not at all. It
1: actually helps you move down the road to truth and understanding because you say, okay, well, that was wrong. How do I need to change to find the truth?
0: You're still learning something from yeah, that. Yeah, you're
1: always learning because it's it's just like a lot of things in life that you learn sometimes by failing. That's the beautiful part of science. You know, the use of logic and reason isn't something that should be or has to be specific to exam- examining the claims of religion. Developing these skills that are used in science, they can translate to all other areas of your life, whether it's God, Orange of the Universe, the veracity of the Bible, or even just like making major life decisions. If you have these critical thinking skills and understand biases and fallacies, it's going to help you in all aspects of your life. There's no downside to it, except for you know, discovering that maybe you've blindly accepted a lot of things as true.
0: And your whole life falls apart. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, that is a slight downside. But, you know, there there is upside to that. Once you get to that point, you, you're like, oh, because you're back on that path of learning because you're like, man, I did a lot of things wrong. They were still a learning experience. Let's move forward.
0: Yeah, totally agree.
1: Yeah, so I think the overall goal has to be that we're trying to identify fallacious thinking or biases that we might be using when you're pursuing knowledge in any area we don't claim to be experts in this you know this is all stuff that we're learning as well so we thought the best way to kind of end this would be, what are some questions that we should ask when we're looking at any kind of issue? If it's if it's God, if it's the Bible, if it's whatever. So the first one would be, what are my biases and presuppositions about this topic? And that may take a little time to figure out because you may not realize, oh, I'm looking at this situation or this argument for Christianity or whatever. And you might say, I don't have any biases about this, but you probably do. So you gotta start there.
0: The second question is, am I using confirmation bias to rationalize or circularly reason the conclusion before looking at the evidence? And a good way to find out if you're doing this is think about what your belief statement is. And if you can switch the two parts of the statement around and it still makes sense, then you may be using confirmation bias or circular reasoning.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a good strategy. Um, the third question would be, do I have any bias blind spots that are preventing me from looking objectively at myself or how I perceive things? And then lastly, am I willing to look at the evidence that is contrary to my biases and follow it to its logical conclusion, even if it contradicts what I believe?
0: So in the words of my mother, are you willing to ask the dangerous questions? Right.
1: You got to be willing to ask the dangerous questions, and that's um, what we're encouraging people to do here. We're, we have tried to ask ourselves these dangerous questions, and sometimes we find the answer that we like, and sometimes we don't.
0: We should have named this episode the one with the dangerous questions.
1: Oh, we probably still can because it hasn't been published. Well, let's do it. Oh yeah, we can totally do that. We can. <laughs> we, we just won't. We'll edit out the part at the beginning where we said the name of the episode. There you go. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Flawed Theology Podcast. I'm Phil. And I'm Susie. Follow us at FlawedTheologyPodcast.com. We have our own website now and domain, so you can subscribe, you can rate, you can listen to the podcast there or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. We're on all the major platforms now. And you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter too.
0: And please give us a review because it really helps. Unless you don't like us, then don't give us a review.
1: (laughs) More confirmation bias.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Thanks again for listening. Remember to always recognize your biases. Watch out for logical fallacies. Follow the evidence wherever it leads and ask those dangerous questions. See you next time. Well, I can't say what I mean.
1: I don't want to say the I'm Susie part because that would be weird.
0: (laughs) No, not that. Do it in your falsetto voice. Yeah. I'm Susie.
1: <laughs> yeah, it sounds just <laughs> like you. Oh, that's funny. All right. <laughs>